Good morning, all. Our reading is brought um, to us from the book of Luke, uh, chapter 3, continuing on from last week, verse 21. And it reads through to chapter 4, verse 13. So that's Luke chapter 3, verse 21, through to Luke chapter 4, verse 13. Now, some of the names may be different. Um, I've got, I'm reading from the NIV version. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And he was praying. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Islai, the son of Nergai, the son of Maeth, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josak, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, and the son of Shatil, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Almadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Methatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Oben, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nehor, the son of Serag, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Ebo, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Aphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in all instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem. And had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, 
He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands and that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left without an opportune time. Thanks, Mana. Brilliant reading of the longest list of crazy names, or one of them, uh, that's in the Bible. Hopefully, as you went through, there were some names there you went, oh, I know that one. That's what I was doing. Um, okay, who are all these people? Well, as we start this week, why don't we pray that God uh, would challenge us through this word and show us the amazingness of His Son, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, as we hear you speak today in the word of Scripture, through the word of the Spirit in your word in Scripture, we ask that you'd point us to Jesus and would see the amazingness of Him being part of the true and living God. We pray this in His name. Amen. Self-discipline, determination and positive self-talk. They're all the words that we hear thrown around, concepts that we're told will help us achieve what we want to achieve. To get the most out of life, to live the way we want And I think there's something in them. I think there's kind of helpful parts that help us to work out how we can change. But if you're anything like me, then change is hard, isn't it? (laughs) It's hard to actually change. The older I get, the more ingrained that I find I am in my habits. Now, no matter who you think Jesus is or what kind of worldview you subscribe to, My hunch is that there are things in your life right now that you're not happy about. Things that you don't even live up to your own expectations in, let alone the expectations of a God who made the world, of the God of the Bible. And if you find yourself doing what you don't want to do and not doing what you do want to do, how do you change? How do you repent, turn How do you say no to sin? Well, if you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, you've missed out on some of this up-close and personal account of the evidence that exists about the man Jesus. And I'd encourage you to go home today and have a read of the first three chapters of the book of Luke and see what Luke, the doctor, wants to point out and show us about Jesus. Because the claims Luke makes about Jesus are out of this world. And if they are true, then they demand that we reorient our universe to put Jesus at the center. Last week, we heard the cry of John the Baptist, a kind of crazy guy. Someone described him later as Wolverine. Well, they said the kids talk picture of John the Baptist looked like Wolverine. I'm like, oh, if only I'd known that, I would have used it. This guy who was kind of out there, but telling the world to turn back to God, turning Israel to confess their sins, confess how they'd placed themselves at the center of the, of the universe instead of God, and to turn back to Him. Clean yourself, wash yourself, turn back to God. And, and I want to ask, how have you gone this week? How have you gone at actually looking at your life and letting God's Word impact you and change you and letting Him search your heart, reflecting on the way that you live and what you live for? Because for me, I think as Monday came round, the Word of God was a little more dim. 
I don't know if you find the same thing. That we've actually got to keep coming back to what we hear God saying each week and letting it sit in our lives. And as I've chatted to some of you throughout the week, though, you have felt the call of God to put Jesus first. You felt it in a similar way. And I want to say that while it's hard, while it's hard to put Jesus at the center, while it's hard to do business with God, it's actually exciting, isn't it? It's exciting because God is molding us to be who He wants us to be. He's changing us to be more like His Son. So don't stop. Don't forget about it. Don't forget about the challenges. Actually dwell on it. Grab the talk from our Facebook page or uh, if you're not on Facebook or you don't have access to our page, write down on your Connect card, please send me the talk. We'll send it to you from last week. Not that it was anything special, but it's just God's Word. Have a look over the passage and think through, do I need to keep doing business with God? Well, as we continue the next section of Luke that Mana just read for us, something odd happens, something surprising Something unique that I'm kind of like, really? If you're following along in your outlines, that's the second point there. Something surprising and unique happens. John's in the desert calling people to repent, to turn back to God. And then we see Jesus walking with the masses, coming out to be baptized, to be washed. Have a look at 3 verse 21. When all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. Now, does that surprise you? Is it possible that Jesus isn't who Luke said he's going to be? That Luke has been building him up as this one who would be the perfect one, God's promised king. Why is he being baptized? Especially with a baptism that is a symbol that that symbolizes washing, of turning back to God, of repenting. What does Jesus need to repent of? Has Luke got this right? Maybe he's really just like one of us. Is he? Is he just like one of you and me? Is he just a sinner in need of forgiveness? Well, I want to say yes and no. Yes, he is just like one of us. He is fully human. Man, Luke goes to great lengths to show you his human lineage. That's what he's kind of laid out. His father and his grandfather and his great great. He's kind of laid out this whole lineage of this guy. He's a normal person. He's flesh and blood. He's a son of Adam. Remember, Adam, the representative of humanity. Jesus is a link to this representative of humanity. But sometimes I think we put Jesus in this extra special category of invincible. You know, he's not really human. He doesn't really experience what we experience. When it comes to temptation or our ability to repent and stick at it, It's not really Jesus that we look to. I mean, of course He can resist temptation, right? He's the Son of God. But what we see here in Luke and throughout the whole kind of Bible, the accounts of Scripture, is time and time again, Jesus sides with His people. He understands His people. He experiences what we experience. He knows what it's like to be fully human. In all its joys and in all its pains, He's not some Clark Kent Superman type guy. Kind of shoot him with bullets and he's fine. No, no, he bleeds. He understands what it's like to be vulnerable, to be totally human. 
And so he goes out to John to be baptized, to show his unity with humanity, to show that he's part of this people. Jesus sides with his people. He did it when he became human, when he was born into the world. He will do it at the cross when he takes the punishment for our sin as our representative, as a new Adam. And he's doing it now at his baptism. As Jesus wades out into the Jordan River to be baptized, he's expressing his oneness with humanity. He's saying he's just like us. He gets it. But there is something different about Jesus. But it's not something that he has that we don't. In fact, it's the opposite. It's something he doesn't have that that we do. Have a look at verse 21. Uh, And as he was praying after he was baptized... Uh, Heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. For the first time in the book of Luke, God the Father speaks. Verbally. Audibly. If you were there, you would have heard God's voice. Something was going on that's so important right now that God didn't send angels, He didn't send messengers, that God speaks to the world about Jesus. Ever wanted a sign from God, a voice, a a message, a kind of personal word that was about you? I, I wonder if God were to look at me and you, what would He say? Well, as everyone else had lined up to get baptized, God's silent. He doesn't say a thing. He agrees with what's going on, this picture of repentance, of washing. Because every single one of those people that went before Jesus, just like every single one of us, needed forgiveness. We needed to come to God and repent and to turn back to Him. But when Jesus steps up to the plate, it's like, it's like God can't, can't stop Himself. He can't hold Himself back. He wants to make perfectly clear that with this one, with Jesus, there is nothing He needs to repent of. Nothing. There is nothing he needs to be washed clean from. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. You alone please me, is what God is saying. Friends, when God speaks, (laughs) he points to Jesus. You alone please me. You alone have kept my law. You alone have loved me with your whole heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. You alone have loved your neighbor as yourself. You alone have done what no one on the face of this planet has ever done from Adam on. And that's worship me. God the Father is pleased with God the Son and sends God the Spirit to be with Jesus as he begins God's mission. His mission on earth. This is like a highlight moment. A picture of what life is supposed to be. A highlight of Jesus. Do you see him? Come with us and look at what this man has to say. But before we do, I want to just pause for a second. Just to think about, well, to think about God really. I want to think about God as he's identified right here in the passage as in three persons. We see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. It's what theologians call a triune God, the Trinity. Now, tr- Trinity is kind of a theological term. 
Uh, it's a term that we use to describe what we see in Scripture. It's one God, but three persons. Now, if you go and chat to a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, uh, they'll tell you quickly that Trinity is not in the Bible. And they're right. The word Trinity is not in the Bible anywhere. Nowhere to be found. You won't, you won't find it's an invention of, of man. But the concept of Trinity is littered all throughout Scripture. Time and time again, we see these pictures of Jesus claiming to be God by forgiving sins. Who can do that but God alone? Uh, in Matthew 28, Jesus sends out His disciples, it's on the screen, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What's interesting is that the name is singular. One name. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. One name, three persons. One God, three persons. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Paul says at, this, at the end of this, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He holds them all together. He says, here is God. And, and he kind of has distinction within that as well. It's not just like they're all God. They all do the same thing. He's, he's showing different parts and different aspects of God. Now, the Trinity is, is a hard concept to get our head around it, right? We don't really meet anyone who is one but three. It's kind of odd. It's unique. But you wouldn't expect God to be like anyone else either, would you? Like he's the one who created. I don't know anyone who speaks and creation comes into being. I'd expect him to be different from everyone else. It's entirely logical and makes sense that this God would be a little hard to get our head around. I can't even fathom how he invented time or, or how he, he spoke and, and solar systems happened. But every time you think of Trinity, there are three words that I want to help you with that will help you to think about God in, in a helpful way. Here are the three words, maybe write them down. Equal, different and one. Equal, different and one. Each person of the Trinity is equally God. Jesus is God, the Father is God and the Spirit is God. They are all equally God, totally God, fully God. They are equal. Second, different. Each person in the Trinity, the Father, Son and Spirit, have a different role and they are different from one another. So the Father sends the Son. Now the Father and the Son send the Spirit. The Father didn't die on the cross. The Spirit didn't die on the cross. But God the Son did. See how they're different roles? They're also different in that when the Father speaks to the Son, He's not talking to Himself. He's not having some conversation with someone in His head. He's actually speaking to God the Son. Yet they are one. And that's the third point. God is one. The true and living God, there is no other. He is on one mission, and that is to seek and save the lost for His glory, but to come and put us back in right relationship with God. And that's exactly why Jesus came. And as I was thinking through that this week, it's kind of, this blew me away. This kind of shook me to my core when I thought through what really seems unbelievable to me. An unbelievable reality. This is what the Father says of the sinless Son. With you I am well pleased. Here's what's unbelievable. What the Father says of His sinless Son, He can say of you and me. This is my Son. With you I am well pleased. 
Like, that's amazing. He can say that to us? How is that? Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. That's what Paul says. By trusting in what Jesus has done, by submitting to Him, we can put a smile on the face of God. Adam was called the Son of God, but he didn't please Him. Satan was at some point in relationship with God, but he didn't bring joy to God. Jesus, the eternal Son, pleases His Dad. And He pleases Him in the midst of suffering. In the midst of going to the cross, of being obedient, so that we can please God by trusting in what Jesus has done for us. Doesn't that amaze you? That we can actually please God, we can put a smile on the face of the Creator of the universe by trusting in the way He's provided. We can't contribute anything to our salvation, but by trusting in the salvation offered, God is pleased. Well, the reason that we can do that, the reason we can put a smile on the face of God has got to do with the battle that Jesus fought. The battle that we get a view of right here in this passage. Have a look at 4 verse 1. Then Jesus returned from the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and when they were over, he was hungry. Now up until this point in human history, the devil has had a 100% success rate. Every single person that has ever lived, every single human being that has walked the face of the planet has failed to please God. Satan is pretty happy about that. And Satan has Jesus exactly where he wants him. After 40 days, Jesus is famished. He's, he's vulnerable. He's hungry. He's human, right? It's not just like his dinner's a little bit late. You know when dinner's late and you get grumpy? kind of snap at people or you haven't eaten in the morning. I don't know, maybe no one else is like me. But you kind of, you kind of like, the, that's not like him. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. Now there's a question about whether or not um, he actually hadn't eaten anything. Um, it, was it that he just fasted, he didn't take anything with him, he ate stuff from the desert? That's possible. Um, in Matthew, uh, Matthew says that John the Baptist came eating and drinking nothing. The same words, the same phrase. But I take it John did eat. In fact, we know he ate grasshoppers and crazy and honey. So that was in regard to his Nazarite vow, right? To, to not drink wine or eat unclean substances. We'll have a look at that a little bit later next term when we see the book of Judges and we meet Samson. We'll kind of see what that is in detail. But to not eat for 40 days, I'm like, is that actually possible? So I looked it up. Actually, it is. Um, the British Medical Journal says that, yes, it's possible and people have survived 40 days on nothing. But I wouldn't advise it. Not something you want to go home and go, yeah, I'm going to try this. They say at about day 35, organs start shutting down, uh, muscles spasm, hallucinations go on. Significantly, uh, your reasoning is becomes significantly impaired. You can't think straight. You can't look straight. You can't stand straight. <laughs> this is a time of weakness. And I actually think this is what went on. I think it's more probable that, that Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days. But what's crystal clear is he was hungry. He was hungry. And that's when, when Satan's temptation comes. See, Satan's not stupid. He knows when we're at our weakest. He knows when we're at our tiredest, at our lowest, that that's the time to strike, right? 
Don't you find that? The time you're, you're, you're most likely to give in or to give up is when you're tired, when you had enough, when you just want relief, when you're needy, when you're desperate. Something floats in front of you and you're like, ah, oh, stuff it. Well, here is Jesus, starving. That's when Satan hits him with round one. 4 verse 3, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. (laughs) How easy it would have been for the one who spoke creation into being to just turn a stone into bread. There's nothing that he didn't make. See, what makes this such a temptation is that Jesus has access to the power to do exactly this. All he has to do is say the word, bread and it happens but it strikes me that jesus never does a miracle for himself as you look throughout the scriptures it's always for the father's glory and the need of others a little bit later jesus would feed five thousand people with hardly anything and then again four thousand people miraculously but he wouldn't feed himself to prove a point Instead, he answers Satan, 4 verse 4, But Jesus answered him, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone. Now, he's not saying we don't need food, okay? Don't go out. Awesome! Jesus says, I don't need food. That's not the point. He's saying we must not live on bread alone. He's saying there's more to life than a full stomach, a full bank account, and a full social calendar. Right? They're not the things that satisfy us. They're not the things that sustain us. Only God sustains us. Only God satisfies us. The only reason you can take a breath is because God allows it. Dependence on God is what makes life. The temptation for Jesus here is to relieve himself from suffering outside the plan of God. To say, all right, I'm not going to go with what God wants me to do here. I'll make my own plan, a different plan. I'll take my satisfaction into my hands because I know better than what my Father has said to doubt the plan they'd had together since the beginning of time. I just want to pause for a sec to kind of have a look at this difference here. I want to say there's a difference between testing and tempting. God tests us, but He never tempts us. In the original Greek, test and tempt are really the same word. Um, But you've got to look at the context because there is a difference. Temptation has at it the aim of making us fail of destroying our faith. A temptation is to kind of trip us. So when I play games with my kids, often my kids are trying to get me out. They're playing the game to kind of, to, to, to kind of make me lose. They want to see me fall down and lose and then they can do stacks on dad and like, we've won, yeah. But when I play with them, I'm trying to help them catch a ball. And sometimes they get hit in the face, but I'm trying to... I'm, I'm try- no, I'm trying, really. I'm trying to kind of help them to be able to go through life. I'm, I'm throwing them a test that I want them to catch. I want them to be able to go forward. I want their best. And that's what God does when He tests us. It comes with the hope, with the expectation and the resources that we can win. That's what God does. And that's what Satan does. Verse 5, So Satan took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it's been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, 
all will be yours. The promise of the world, right there, right then. It got me thinking, can Satan actually offer that? Can, can he actually do this? Does he have the authority? And I kind of looked through and think, well, John calls Satan the prince of this world. Uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians says, Satan has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. Satan has real power. He has real power. But we've got to remember that nothing happens outside the will of God. Jesus says, not even a sparrow falls to the ground outside the will of my Father. The devil wants to give you the impression every day that he's in charge, that he's got the best way out, that his way is best. But it's not. He's not. He's been a liar from the beginning. Did God really say that if you eat of this, he won't surely die? This world belongs to its maker. Paul in Colossians says all things were created through Jesus, for Jesus, and by Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate authority. Jesus is the one who's come to take the crown of glory. He's the one who's come to rule the world. He is the ultimate authority. And the temptation here for Jesus is to be crowned with glory without having first be crowned with a crown of thorns. It's another way. It's another possibility. A way that's without suffering to be the ultimate ruler. But in his own words, a little later, Jesus will say that he must suffer, he must be killed, and on the third day rise again. So his reply in verse 8 is this. It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. <laughs> I love those words. If only Adam had said that in the garden, instead of remaining silent, letting Satan go on with his wife and then convincing her. If only he'd said, no, worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. We don't need you, Satan. We trust God. If only Israel had said that in the wilderness, worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. If only I said that <laughs> regularly, instead of, well worshipping myself if only i thought those words worship the lord your god and serve him only they're great verses they're great words to put up on your mirror or wherever you look at yourself before you walk out every day and think oh am i acceptable to the world worship the lord your god and serve him only it is written imagine this i can see it on the mirror right now it is written Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. He's not just number one. He's the only one. Worship Jesus. And why wouldn't you? <laughs> why wouldn't you worship the true and living God, right? I mean, Christians get it all through trusting Jesus. We get life, we get hope, we get assurance, we get relationship with God. Romans 8 says that through the work of the Spirit, uniting us to Jesus... We're called children of God. If you trust Jesus, you are called God's child. Heirs with Christ. That means we'll inherit what Jesus... We will inherit the world. It's better than any king or queen has in some puny little part of the country that's kind of set... Part of the world that's kind of called their, their, their country. We will inherit the world. Check out verse 17 of Romans 8. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. 
Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you worship God? Why wouldn't you want to inherit the universe? But as we read that verse, we've also got to read the second half of it. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we also may share in his glory. I want to be clear. The Christian life is not without its quota of suffering. If our Savior suffered, what makes you think that his servants are going to get it any easier? As temptation comes, it will be hard to put Jesus first. The evil one will be wanting to pull us into places when we're down, when we're out, when we're tired, that says, just trust me. We need to count the cost of following Jesus, of trusting God that he will bring us glory in his way and in his time. We've seen the picture. We've seen Jesus die on the cross. We've seen that he's risen again for us and that he's offered that life to us. Don't go seeking for it in other places. It will involve denying yourself and placing Jesus at the center. When temptation comes, count the cost of following Jesus. But count the blessings too, okay? Because it's worth it, isn't it? Well, round three. Satan takes him close to home. 4 verse 9. So he took him to Jerusalem. He had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will give His angels orders concerning you to protect you. And they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. The third time Satan comes at him, he doesn't come at him with Money Magazine or House and Garden or Women's Weekly or Playboy. That's not what he's trying to tempt him with, but with the Bible, with God's Word. It's a misquote of Psalm 91 verse 12. He's like, if you are the Son of God, He'll take care of you. He's pushing him to, to, well, to doubt him. See, God wants you to trust him and not test him. But Satan wants you to test him and not trust him. Do you see that difference? God wants you to trust God, not test him. Satan wants you to test God, not trust him. How often have you found yourself going, I can just go a little close to the edge. I know it's dangerous. I know I shouldn't go over there. I'm not over there. I'm just, I'm just here. I'm not really doing that thing that we would call sin, but I'm just on the edges. I'm a child of God. He won't pull me back. I mean, he will pull me back. He won't let me slip away. It's, it's like the line, you know, I can speed. I'm on the way to church. Right? God wants you to get, God wants me to be, I'm a child of God. He'll make all the lights go green. And if they're not green, they should have. And there was some miscommunication with the system. So I'll just go through them anyway. It's, it's kind of a little bit crazy, but I don't need a seatbelt. I don't need insurance. I'm a child of God. I heard of a pastor once who had that exact same attitude. He said, I don't need insurance. I'm a child of the kingdom. God is my father and he will look after me. Then he got robbed. <laughs> yes, he, he might have been a child of God, but he's also a child of stupidity. Right? God doesn't promise that we won't get robbed. He's trusting in a, in a promise of God that doesn't exist. It's a fallen world. Stuff happens. Now, I'm not saying you've all got to go and get insurance. It's not what I'm saying. Don't hear that. But to go, nothing will happen to me because I'm a child of God. Where do you get that from? Where does God promise that that would actually happen? It actually borders on testing God, not trusting Him. 
See, and Satan loves to use Bible verses and, and take them out of context to pressure people to do things, to trust God in areas that he's never promised. And then, and then you kind of test God on these things that he's never said and they don't happen. And you're like, what went on? Does God still love me? Satan's like, well, yeah, got you exactly where I want you because you believe something God never said in the first place. I twisted it. Caught ya. Anyone can say the Bible says, but someone who knows the Bible well can say yes, but the Bible also says. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. And Jesus answered him in verse 12. It is said, do not test the Lord your God. God does not have to prove His power to you by healing you every time you ask. God doesn't have to prove His love to you by giving you everything you want. He's shown His power and His love unmistakably and most outrageously by dying on a cross and rising again to give you eternal life. Does God love us? Yes. And everything He does above that, and there's so much, isn't there? He's just icing on the cake. It's a wicked and sinful generation that keeps asking for a miraculous sign. Well, in these three accounts, here is this picture of Jesus, filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit. A great example of a real human who understands what temptation is, who feels the, the, kind of, the, the desire to give in, who's vulnerable. But he's led by the Spirit straight out after his baptism. He's no coward. He might still be wet, right? But he's ready for battle. What's his weapon of choice? How does he fight temptation? Well, it's the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. (laughs) It struck me that the one who was with the Father from the beginning of time, the one who spoke creation into being, who'd been in great relationship with his Father and with the Spirit from the beginning, who'd had lots of conversations, I'd imagine, from all eternity. Imagine this perfect relationship of the Godhead, of the triune God. There would have been so much they've talked about and enjoyed forever. There was so much that he knew of God the Father and so much he had there. But when it comes time to fight with Satan, what does he do? He doesn't quote some heavenly discussion. He quotes Scripture. What God had said through humans like us to the world around us, that's how he chooses to fight. And I want to encourage us that Scripture is the place that we need to be. When I, um, when I finished my study at um, theological college, my parents gave me this box. I'm like, cool. Sometimes my parents give pretty awkward presents. Uh, and I, I'm like, it's going to be some, I don't know, tap or sprinkler system for my graduation. Anyway, so I, I opened it up and it's actually a sword. And I'm like, whoa, this is pretty cool. And as I look at it, I thought, is it a real one? And I'm like, yeah, it is. And on the sword, it has this inscription in Greek. I'll read it in English. It's easier. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews 4.12. This is a good symbol, a two-edged sword. It's a period sort of what it would have been, what, what the writer of Hebrews would have been pointing forward to. This is God's offensive weapon, not the sword, but the Bible. What's in your hands? Jesus has got access to everything, of every power, of every angel. What does he use? The Word of God. 
the Word of God. You missed the top. It's supposed to not be sharp, but it is, anyway. If you want God to lead you, if you want the Spirit to convict you and take you places and to defend you and to stop you falling into temptation, unsheath the sword. Open up the Word of God. And I say this to me as much as I say it to you. This is where He speaks. This is how Jesus defends Himself. I need to hear the call of Hebrews, the call of Jesus and what He's doing to me. And that says, stop being so lazy, Rowan. What are you doing? Why would you not open the Word yourself and read it? doesn't mean you need to read it all day, every day, like it's some magic thing. No, but this is God speaking to you. Is, is temptation beating you? Then you can't afford to keep the Word shut. Do you know your Bible? Because Satan does. He knows it well. Did you see that? Satan uses Scripture against Jesus. And if you're sloppy with your Scripture, Satan will absolutely destroy you because he'll take things out of context and you'll suddenly believe them. And some of us are in that stage of life right now where you're kind of like, you know, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling like life's going well. I'm not really tempted. I'm in a good rhythm. I'm okay. Exactly where Satan wants you. He wants all the soldiers to take the bullets out of the gun, take their boots off and sit in the trenches and have a smoke. And then he drops in and says, see this? 4 verse 13. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Satan will be back. He's just waiting. Your life is at stake. Your soul is at stake. Your family is at stake. Your city is at stake. We need to unsheath the sword. Everywhere I look where things go pear-shaped, it's because (laughs) we shut the Bible and think we know better than God. We shut the Bible to our lives. We shut the Bible to our churches, to our society, and things go pear-shaped. Decide today to open the Word daily. I know it's cliche for churches. Yeah, read the Bible. But seriously, do you think you don't need to? What's wrong with me? Why don't I do it? Because I don't get how vulnerable I am. No matter whether it's a good time or a bad time, whether you're tired, overworked, whether you're successful and proud or healthy and invincible, whether you're bored and distracted and in need of titillation or whatever it is, when when you're in love and you don't feel like you need God and when you're not in love or when you're feeling rejected and desperate and you want other people's approval, when you're feeling insignificant, when you're hungry, when you want others' respect, it's when Satan will just press. It's the opportune time for the evil one to come and woo you away from your Father in heaven, the one in whom God can say, if you keep trusting Him... With you, I am well pleased. Well, how do we handle temptation well? Well, I've got one pointer, and I think it actually comes from understanding the Trinity. The Trinity is not a lesson in mere theology. Uh, a, A good friend of mine, the guy who trained me in ministry, used to keep saying, all theology is practical. All knowledge of God shapes the way we think and act and live. 
And if we understand who God is properly, then actually we have a right understanding of how we handle temptation well. Because of who God is, that He is Father, Son, and Spirit. And the work of Jesus in our place. See, when we fail, when we fall down, when we need to come back to Him and repent, we can. We can pray to God as our Father, not as the judge, as the one who longs for us to be back into relationship with Him. We can speak to Him as if we were Jesus Christ Himself because we are in Christ. We can call Him Abba, Father, Dad. I am so sorry. What an amazing privilege. Don't believe Satan's lie that when you get knocked over, you can't get back up again. Jesus has already won. Tell Satan that. The fact that Jesus has been made like every one of us in every way, that he was fully human, fully tempted, yet without sin. Jesus understands right now what it's like. He's at the right-hand side of the Father right now, not accusing us, but interceding for us. We have a brother, a saviour, a friend, who's speaking to his dad on our behalf because he's died for us and he's risen again. The only way to pray to the Father, the only way to have that relationship with the Father is through the Son who's paid the price, who's extinguished the wrath. Don't stay away from your dad. Run to him. But we can only come to the Father because of the Son and we can only come to the Son because the Spirit draws us to Jesus. The Spirit that lives within us if you trust him takes the Father and the Son to us, the Spirit that convicts us of sin and shows us when we need to repent, shows us that moment where you're like, oh, that was hard, that was heavy, I need to change. The Spirit that convicts me but never condemns me, never says you're too far gone, but says Jesus died for you and that was enough. The Spirit that comforts us Because He unites us to the Son who's risen, who's won, who's finished. There's no threat here, friends, but an invitation to come to the God who loves you. Come to Him. What God can say about His own Son, through the work of the Spirit and your trust in Jesus, God can say about you, This is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. For God sees you as he sees Jesus. Why don't we pray that we keep coming back to God, listening to him, living for him, trusting the God who is three persons, who loves us. Father God, we want to thank you so much that Jesus didn't give in to temptation. That we, because of what he has done, can call you dad. Lord, last week and throughout the week, you've shown many of us, and maybe even today, of our need to come to you on our knees. But thank you, Father, that we can come to you not not worried about judgment, but trusting in your Son who has borne that judgment for us. Father, for those of us here who have not yet placed their trust in Jesus, we ask that your Spirit would show Jesus to them, that you might see the amazingness of this man, the one whom you, God, have spoken of, that these people might come and see you. 
that we would share this news with our friends around because, Lord, it is so true and so right that we would speak the truth of your word into our families, into ourselves, into our city. Father, we pray that your spirit would convict us and comfort us. We thank you that your son has paid the price for us and that as temptation comes, we know we have a God who is our father. So Lord, help us to say no, to push aside these temptations that aren't true and let us glorify you now. Lord, we know that in the age to come, everyone will glorify you. Give us a sense right now of the fact that we can glorify you now by saying no to sin and yes to following your plan. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.